Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am in Luke chapter 13. I'm going to go from verse 1 through verse 21. We're going to take up two topics. First of all, we're going to talk about how Jesus is explaining to the Jerusalemites that they are not any better than anybody else and, in fact, are just as sinful as people who undergo tragedy because they're about to go their tragedy, a tragedy of their own, namely the destruction of their city and nation in AD 70. And then after that, we'll switch gears as Jesus heals somebody on the topic and has another Sabbath healing controversy. This fits in with the context of the end of the last chapter of Luke 12, in which Jesus is preparing his disciples for the persecution that's, that's running up to this destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. And he tries to buck them up because he knows that the persecution is going to be pretty bad. So we'll start in verse 1 in Luke chapter 13. At that time, some people came and reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Now, that's a fancy way of saying that basically Pilate killed some Galileans while they were sacrificing in the temple. It was a pretty nasty way to kill somebody. Pontius Pilate was a nasty guy. Now, this incident is unrecorded otherwise in history. This is the only place that it's known, according to my NIV study Bible. So we can just speculate as to what it referred to. Some people say that it was likely, or Jameson Fawcett Brown says, possibly the followers of that Judas of Galilee who was mentioned in Acts 5.37, which says this, After this man, Judas the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following, that man also perished, and all his partisans were scattered. Well, it doesn't matter who they were. The point is, is they were killed while they were offering sacrifices of very bad tragedy. Now here's an interesting speculation by Adam Clark as to who these people were. Clark says that the Galileans were known to be the most seditious people in the land. They belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. Remember Herod Antipas was in charge of Galilee and Perea. Galilee is around the Sea of Galilee. Perea is on the east coast of the Jordan River. These Galileans probably went from Herod's jurisdiction in Galilee down to Jerusalem at one of the feasts. And, of course, Pontius Pilate is in charge of Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate hated Herod. And so he says, this is a chance I can get it, Herod. I'm going to kill these people who are offering sacrifices down here. That's a good speculation. Remember, Pilate hated Herod, but they got to be friends after they joined their thoughts together in how they were going to crucify Jesus during the time of Jesus' crucifixion. The NIV Study Bible says that having people killed while offering sacrifices in the temple fits Pilate's reputation quite well. Now, why did why the next question that arises is why did people come to Jesus to tell them about this murder of the Galileans as they were sacrificing? What's the big deal? Why? Well, it could be for strategic reasons on reasons on the part of the Pharisees that wanted to get Jesus in trouble. And here's what they could here's what the bind that they could have been putting Jesus in. If they opposed Pilate and said, you know, Pilate, you really shouldn't have killed those Galileans, well that would get Jesus in trouble with the Romans, because Pilate was the Roman governor. But if on the other hand they approved Pilate's actions, well then what's that gonna make the people think, the Galileans in particular think, or just the common person who's following Jesus, that's gonna make Jesus very unpopular. So the idea is that perhaps these scribes and Pharisees, if that's indeed who reported the story to Jesus, which it probably was, then if then their motive would have been to get Jesus in trouble. 
However, there's another less sinister take on this, is that people objectively wanted to know whether the Galileans were good or bad people. The reason for this is because there was a widespread notion due to the teaching of the Pharisees that bad things happened to bad people. If something bad happened to you, it's because you were a bad person. Now, this, of course, completely contradicts the teaching of the book of Job. Job was not a bad person. He was a righteous man in all that he did, and yet he had horrible things happen to him. So this is going to be an occasion for Jesus to reaffirm that teaching of Job, which is that, no, sometimes bad things happen to good people. You can't judge people's sinfulness by their external circumstances. Now, when did this happen, by the way? Well, Clark had, excuse me, A.T. Robertson has it during the later Judean ministry as we're working up to the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Clark says what time this is is not easy to determine. Well, we're just going to assume that Robertson's right. We're heading toward the crucifixion. Luke 13, verses 2 through 3. And he responded to them, Do you think these Galileans were more sinful than all Galileans because they suffered these things? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all perish as well. So Jesus does two things. First of all, he says that, look, you can't say the Galileans were more sinful just because they had a tragedy happen to them. No, you can't do that. First thing he did. Second thing, and there's another thing you can't do. Jews, Jerusalemites, Israelites, there's another thing you can't do. Just because things are going hunky-dory with you, just because you're prosperous and everybody's smiling at you and giving you honorable seats at the banquets and honorable seats in the synagogue and just because you're making a lot of money and just because everything is going along just rosy don't think that because of that you're not a sinner you are sinful and evil and you better repent because if you don't repent you're going to perish as well in other words just like those Galileans sacrificing the temple died you're going to die now what's when he says perish what's he referring to well, he's referring to 8070 <laughs> he, he he's referring to the fact uh, that they're going to literally perish in 8070, and Jameson, Foss, and Brown says, but it's even more than that. They're going to be punished eternally. They're going to be punished both ways. So don't let your superficial righteousness, Pharisees, make you think that you're exempt from punishment by trying to point out to people who have tragedy in their life that they're sinful. And this idea that bad people, that people who suffer bad things are bad people is everywhere in the Copeland-Haganite movement, the faith message movement. I experienced that because I was around people like this for a long time. And I'll never forget a guy who's gone on to be with the Lord now. He was into this heresy and his name was Mark. And he saw a crippled man at a grocery store and he said, if that man just had faith, he wouldn't be crippled. How disgusting that was to him. Instead of having compassion on the crippled man who's limping around the aisles in the grocery store, he mocks him and says he's a sinner because he's crippled. That kind of attitude was everywhere in that movement. And, of course, this Mark, he was in my fellowship group at my university. He's working summer construction on on the 10th floor of a building. He's backing up with a load of cement and backs down an elevator shaft, falls 10 floors, and, of course, at the bottom, he died. So I just tell you that story to say, stay away from this kind of teaching. Read the book of Job and understand what it means. Now, speaking of the book of Job, let me give you some excerpts to show how Job's false friends were having the same attitude as these Pharisees. Job 4, verse 7, Consider who has perished when he was innocent. This is Eliphaz, one of the false friends he's speaking. Eliphaz says this, Consider who has perished when he was innocent. 
In other words, if you'd just been innocent, Job, all this stuff wouldn't happen to you. Nobody ever dies because they're innocent. Well, that's a joke. A lot of innocent people die. Happens all the time. Where have the honest been destroyed? Oh, really? There's never been honest people who've been destroyed? Oh, yes, sir. Yes, there has been. So Eliphaz is a fool for saying this. Just like the Pharisees were fools for, for saying that. Job 22, verse 5. This is Eliphaz again, the false friend of Job. He says this to Job. Isn't your wickedness abundant, and aren't your iniquities endless? Job's pain and suffering was endless, so therefore his iniquities must have been endless. A lie, a stupid theological error. So, as the NIV Study Bible says, Jesus is trying to say here, look, all sinners are guilty, even the ones who are living high and soft, as well as the people who are going through trial. Everybody's a sinner, you've got to repent. Don't think that you're not worthy of judgment just because things are going good with you. Now, notice that Jesus never got caught in that trap, if indeed it was a trap set for him, because he didn't approve or disapprove of Pilate's actions. He just went straight to the theological heresy, the theological error, and the arrogance of the Pharisees, and the pride. We're not going to get judged. That couldn't happen to us. We're good Jews. Jesus didn't need to get himself involved in unnecessary, unnecessary controversy, and he did not. We go to verse 4 and 5 of Luke 13. Jesus gives another example to teach the same teaching. Jesus continues, Are those 18 that the tower in Siloam fell on and killed, do you think that they were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. Now, again, this is a incident that only occurs here in Luke 13. There are no parallel passages. And in fact, the falling of the tower in Siloam is not recorded in history anywhere. It's only, only recorded here. Now, Siloam was on the southeast. There was a pool of Siloam on the southeast corner of Jerusalem. Probably there was porticos around this pool and a tower was built next to it. And probably these 18 guys were swimming, or 18 people, were swimming in the pool. And the tower fell on them and killed them. This is according to John Gill. A tragedy. They were not sinning. They were just ordinary people going about their daily business and they got killed. As the NIV Study Bible says, and as I just said, this is the same teaching Jesus is giving here as he gave with the story of the Galileans killed as they were offering their sacrifices. And when Jesus says, you guys are going to, be per you're going to perish as well, just like those 18 at the Pool of Siloam, John Gill puts it a little, a little bit more emphatically. You will be buried under the rubble of Jerusalem as were these 18 buried under the rubble of the tower. <laughs> so... You guys are going to perish. Notice how he says in verse 4, Jesus says, Do you think those 18 were more sinful than all the people who live in Jerusalem? In other words, he's making a contrast here, making an analogy here. 18 went down at Siloam. Everybody in Jerusalem's going down in AD 70 when Jesus comes in judgment. And you're going to go down unless you repent and be amongst the Christian Jews who escaped that judgment as they left the city and went to Pella and didn't have to suffer that kind of physical perishing and of course eternally they, if you don't repent they're going to eternally perish as well which of course christians would not verse uh, luke verse 13 chapter 13 verses 6 through 7 oh excuse me a minute let me before i go on let me give a good quote from adam clark who was quoting josephus about the fall of jerusalem when the city was taken by the romans multitudes of the priests etc who were going on with their sacrifices were slain and their blood mingled with the blood of their victims, and multitudes were buried under the ruins of the walls, houses, and temples. So just like the people at the Pool of Siloam got buried by that falling tower, the people of Jerusalem were, quote-unquote, buried under the ruins of the walls, houses, and temples. 
That's from Josephus, Adam Clark, quoting Josephus. Luke 13, verses 6 through 7. And he told this parable. Now he switched from those two stories of tragedy befalling innocent people. Now he's going to a parable to just directly point out to the Jews that they're going down at eighty seventy. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, Listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? Now, this is the only time in the Synoptic Gospels or in the Gospels period that this parable is given. This is by itself in Luke. Let's interpret the parable. And by the way, there's been a lot of disagreement on the individual representations or symbols in the parable, although the general thrust of the parable is quite clear. The Jews are going down in eighty seventy, but I'm going to give you what I think is the most reasonable interpretation of the details. The man that had the fig tree that was planted in the vineyard, that man was God the Father. He had a fig tree that was planted in his vineyard. The vineyard refers to Israel as it often does. What is the fig tree planted in the vineyard? The fig tree is probably Jerusalem, perhaps, or maybe just the Jewish leaders. Now he, that's God, the Father, the man who had the fig tree. God owned Israel. They were his chosen people. He came looking for fruit on it. So he goes down to his chosen people and says, where's the fruit? Where's the fruit, Jerusalem? Where's the fruit? Came looking for fruit on it and found none. He told the vineyard worker, that would be Jesus, his son, Listen, for three years I've come looking for the fruit and and haven't found any. Some people say that that refers to the three years that Jesus went ministering amongst these hard-hearted Jews. Jesus was looking for fruit and he hadn't found any yet. Some people deny that. I think it prob- that's probably what Jesus, what God is talking about. God tells the vineyard worker, "You've been working for three years and I've been looking for fruit and I don't see any." So, so then God tells the vineyard worker, Jesus. Cut it down. In other words, wipe them out. Watch it and even waste the soil. This fits in with the perfect interpretation of the Olivet Discourse as Jesus coming in judgment to wipe it out. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? I mean, these Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they were not only a waste of energy, they were a positive menace. They were poisoning the soil. They were a positive evil. Now, to get some authority backing that up, Cut it down in verse 6. Adam Clark says this refers to the Romans in 8070 who are going to come cut Israel down. And Clark references Matthew 3.10. This is John the Baptist speaking. Even now the axe is ready to strike the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that doesn't produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Of course, that's John the Baptist referring to 8070 also, most probably. So that's not really a different option there. So yeah, the cutting it down, according to Adam Clark is referring to the destruction of Israel in AD 70. We go now to Luke chapter 13, verses 8 through 9, to continue with this parable. But he, the vineyard worker, Jesus, replied to him, the vineyard, the fig tree and vineyard owner, God the Father, but he, Jesus, replied to God the Father, Sir, leave it this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. Perhaps it will bear fruit next year, but if not, you can cut it down. This shows Jesus' compassion his mercy, he's trying to convert these hard-hearted Pharisees, and they don't listen to him. So he's interceding for them. Well, they didn't repent, so they, yeah, they, then they got cut down. John Gill agrees with this interpretation. He says that the effort to fertilize the fig tree, that represents all the efforts Jesus and his disciples went to in order to minister to the Jews. 
Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 13. Now we switch to a different topic here. We switch from the warnings of the coming judgment on Israel in AD 70. We're now going to go to another Sabbath healing controversy. Verses 10 through 13, as he was teaching, Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. A woman was there who had been disabled by a spirit for over 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten up at all. When Jesus saw her, he called out to her, Woman, you are free of your disability. Then he laid his hands on her, and instantly she was restored and began to glorify God. Now, first of all, we need to distinguish this woman who had a, a spirit, a demon, that bent her over for 18 years. This is not a woman who had an issue of blood. I think she was 15 years. I think she was up in Galilee. And this is in a synagogue somewhere in Judea near the end of Jesus' ministry. So it's two different instances. Why did Jesus say, woman, you are free? Because he cast that demon out. He never says that he cast the demon out. He says he laid his hands on her and instantly she was restored. But we can infer that the demon was cast out. Notice that Jesus talked about the freedom in advance of actually doing the deed. He said, woman, you are free. Then he laid his hands on her and cast the demon out. Jesus knew what was going to be happening. He was so confident he could talk about what was going to happen in the future as, as if it had already happened. He wasn't worried about that demon coming out. Notice that when the woman stood up, 18 years now, she hasn't stood up. It's a big deal in her life. She began to glorify God, obviously. Notice her attitude compared to the synagogue ruler's attitude, which we'll get to in the next verse. They became indignant. Typical, pharisaical, disgusting attitude. This is an incidental detail. This is one of the synagogues that Jesus was teaching in. Gil quotes the rabbis as saying that there were between 394 and 480 synagogues in Jerusalem. So not only was the temple there, but also a lot of synagogues. If, assuming this is where Jesus was, he might have been somewhere else outside of Jerusalem in Judea, but it's not strange that he was in a synagogue in Jerusalem. Now notice this woman was bent over, but she still made it into the synagogue. She was going to hear Jesus teach. Now, there's a lot. you can always, It's like making excuses as to why you shouldn't listen to Jesus is the same as making excuses why you shouldn't exercise. You can always find one. Dumb move. You got a chance to listen to Jesus. Go listen to him. She listened. She she might not have been going to thinking she might be healed, but she might have been. It's hard to say. She might have just been wanting to go hear him, but she got healed. She got blessed by being in the presence of Jesus. Always reasons. John Gill says this is a good verse for those who miss fellowship with the saints because of a cold, etc. Well, you know, I don't feel so good today. I think I'll just stay. I can't tell you how many times I've gotten up on Sunday morning and not wanted to go with fellowship with the saints because it didn't feel good. I was bored, I was depressed, I was under, under the weather. Hey, listen, and always when you go, you're glad to be there. Nothing better than to be with the saints. All right, she glorifies God, the healed woman, but the religious leaders damn the one who did the healing. Luke verse 13, chapter 13, verse 14. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, responded by telling the crowd, There are six days when work should be done, therefore come on these days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. The synagogue leader was referring to the famous fourth commandment, Exodus 20, verses 9 through 10. You are to labor six days and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You must not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the foreigner who is within your gates. 
Now, of course, this is a big deal for the Jews. It was a big deal to God. Don't work on Saturday. But the Jews perverted that law, and they started describing anything as work, including healing people. They said if you spit on the ground and the dust parted to the left and to the right, you're plowing, and therefore you're working. If you spit an apricot seed out of the side of your bed, you're working. All sorts of nonsense like that. You can't even carry your clothes out of a burning house because that's work. So, as the NIV Study Bible points out, that a focal point of the attack against Jesus was his ministering on the Sabbath. The Pharisees complained about that all the time. I'm going to give you a lot of scriptures to show you this. I'm going to just read them back to back. Luke chapter 6, verses 6 through 11. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. A man was there whose right hand was paralyzed. The scribes and Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so they could find a charge against him. But he knew their thoughts and told the man with the paralyzed hand, get up and stand here. So he got up and stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do what is evil, to slave life or to destroy it? And of course, that, that, the answer to that rhetorical question was obvious. It's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, which includes healing. After look at the Bible, the Old Testament Mosaic law never said it was sinful to heal on the Sabbath or unlawful to heal on the Sabbath. And then Jesus heals him. Luke 14, 1 through 6. One Sabbath, when he went to eat at the house of one of the leading Pharisees, they were watching him closely. There in front of him was a man whose body was swollen with fluid, but got dropsy. In response, Jesus asked the law experts and the Pharisees, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they kept silent. Well, I know why they kept silent. They knew they couldn't prove anywhere, in, in, at least in Moses' law, that it was sinful to heal on the Sabbath. So the experts of the law kept quiet. Jesus took the man, healed him, and sent him away. And to them he said, Which of you whose son or ox falls into a well will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? To this they could find no answer. So Jesus was basically taking the practices and the teachings of the Pharisees and showing that even on their grounds they couldn't condemn his healing on the Sabbath because even the Pharisees would get an ox out of the well if necessary. The rabbinic law allowed it. I think the law was this. If the ox can survive till Sunday, well, you feed him while he's in the ditch or in the well and you feed him, and on Sunday you pull him out. However, if he's going to die before Sunday, even if you feed him, pull him out. Don't let him die. So you're allowed to break the Sabbath. There's lots of examples like that in the Jewish rabbinic law. Matthew 12, 1 through 8. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And again, nowhere in Moses' law does it say it's wrong to pick grain as you're walking along the side of the road. In fact, it was provided for in the Mosaic Law that you could do that if you were poor, which these disciples were. They weren't only not breaking the Mosaic Law, they were fulfilling the Mosaic Law. Jesus responds to them, to the Pharisees, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered the house of God, and they ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for him, but for those with him to eat, but only for the priest? He refers to a famous incident in the Old Testament that David when hungry, asked for bread from uh, at no at Nob, from the high priest there, and that, and he ate uh, sacred bread, which normally only the priest could eat. David was not a priest, but it was necessity in that case. Verse five: Haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? In other words, the priests themselves are slaughtering animals. That's work, is it not? It's interesting here. Do they really violate the Sabbath, or are they violating the Sabbath according to the Jewish traditions of work? They certainly weren't violating the Sabbath according to the Mosaic Law. They were told in the Mosaic Law that on the Sabbath day they were supposed to sacrifice. 
And Jesus finishes up, but I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, i.e. innocent people who are not really working on the Sabbath and who are getting healed on the Sabbath. And me, and you, and me, I'm innocent, healing people on the Sabbath. You wouldn't condemn me, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus is a lot more important than that Mosaic law, even though Jesus didn't break the Mosaic law, as I've gone to great pains to show. He didn't break it, but he's still Lord of the Sabbath. He can do what he wants on the Sabbath. Matthew 12:11 through 12, but he said to them, what man among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A man is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. And so that's the point. It's okay to do good on the Sabbath, even according to the tight-fisted Jewish traditions and rabbinical laws. It was okay to do good on the Sabbath. Then we got the healing of the man by the pool in Bethesda. He couldn't get up. He was lame. And so Jesus said, get up, pick up your mat and walk. He walked. Getting down to the, this is in John 5, 1 through 18. I'll go down to the end of verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, this is the Sabbath. It's illegal for you to pick up your mat. Now see, this is how the Pharisees operate. The man is healed. And he's been, he was how many times he'd been, I don't forget how long he'd been, 38 years. He'd been 38 years, for the first time in 38 years, he was able to walk. What do the Pharisees say? It's illegal to pick up your mat. All right, point number one, it was not illegal to pick up your mat. You look in the Mosaic Law, where does it say that's work, that servile labor, as the King James has it? Where? Picking up your mat is working to make your bread? I don't think so. So they got all mad at him. To finish the story in verse 18, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, and he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So breaking the Sabbath was one of the two things that got the Jews really interested in killing Jesus. He made himself equal with God, and he broke the Sabbath. That was a big deal to them. Now notice this synagogue leader, back in our verse here in Luke 13:14. He's complaining because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. Now notice he didn't complain to Jesus. It says in verse 13, the leader of the synagogue responded by telling the crowd their six days when work should be done. He told the crowd, didn't have the guts to tell Jesus. He's probably smart because Jesus would have reamed him out like he reamed everybody else out in those verses I just read. But the people were under his influence, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown say, because he was a big shot religious leader. All right, we go to Luke chapter 13, verses 15 through 17. But the Lord answered him, that's the synagogue ruler, Jesus answered the synagogue ruler and said, Hypocrites! Jesus loved to call these people hypocrites. He just, he's seeker friendly. Doesn't each one of you untie his ox or donkey from the feeding trough on the Sabbath and lead it to water? Satan has bound this woman, a daughter of Abraham, for 18 years. A daughter of Abraham, one of your own people, a Jew. She's been bound by Satan for 18 years. Shouldn't she be untied from this bondage on the Sabbath day? In other words, you untie an ox. Why can't I untie a human being, a Jewish human being, that you're supposed to be care that you're supposed to care about? Well, the answer to that's obvious. They're hypocrites. When he had said these things, all his adversaries were humiliated. Of course they were, but the whole crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things he was doing. I just love it when these saliva dripping, bony fingered. Pharisaical hypocrites are humiliated publicly. There's nothing that makes me happier. Kind of like when a social justice warrior gets humiliated for his nonsense. Oh, there's nothing that makes me happier. Why did he call them hypocrites? The NIV Study Bible says it's because they professed zeal for the law, but that wasn't their real motive. Their real motive was to attack Jesus and his healing. 
Oh, you're supposed to work on only on six days. You're not supposed to work on the seventh. Oh, see how holy I am. I'm cared about the law. He says, hypocrites, you don't care about the law. You just want to come after me. Luke 13, verses 18 through 19. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like? Now, this is, who knows when this happened. This is a repeat, by the way. This is the parable of the mustard seed. It's a repeat because Jesus had given that on a different occasion in Matthew 13. That's up in Galilee. So this is the repeat. Uh, parable says this. What is the kingdom of God like and what can I compare it to? It's like a mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. It grew and became a tree and the birds of the sky nested in its branches. Now the man who planted the mustard seed was Jesus as he, as he sows the word. It, the mustard seed grew and became a tree and that's the point of the parables how the, the kingdom of God is not going to stay small. It's going to get bigger and bigger. Now, let me point out that in Matthew 13, in the earlier version of this parable, Jesus said it's the smallest of all the seeds. He doesn't say that here in Luke 13, 18, and 19. But let me repeat what I said in Matthew on my in my audio on Matthew 13, 31 through 32. Let me repeat that here. Just because Jesus said it was the smallest of all the seeds, and as a matter of fact, in the whole world, it's not the smallest of all the seeds. It's only the smallest of all seeds in Judea. That does not mean that Jesus spoke an error and the Bible's got error in it. I read somewhere, I, I think I was at seminary, and somebody said this is one of the things that got the people started that started preaching the errancy of Scripture, and they started Fuller Seminary. I've had a bad attitude toward Fuller Seminary ever since then. It doesn't mean that Jesus made a mistake he was using language in the context of his hearers it was proverbial in judea that the mustard seed was the smallest seed in in judea gill says it was the smallest seed in judea and jameson foss and brown say that it was proverbially the smallest seed in judea either way for the purpose of his communication jesus said look you guys you know that the mustard seed is the smallest he wasn't referring to mustard seeds in tasmania all right so the main point is how the kingdom of God is going to grow and grow and grow. Now remember, the kingdom of God started with Jesus. Well, actually, it was the forerunner. Let's start with him. He was a crazy man, wild man out in the desert, eating wild locust and honey, eating wild honey and locust, and girded about with leather, leather and hairy animal skins, and preaching the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is coming. And the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Repent, repent, repent. All right, so he's a little bit... Wild, and then Jesus came along 30 years later, and he is a humble carpenter, not educated in the, the great schools of Jerusalem. He picks 12 disciples, most of whom are uneducated fishermen. They might not have been illiterate, but they were uneducated fishermen. This is not how you start a religion, folks. Well, Jesus predicted that from those humble beginnings, the kingdom of God was going to spread all across the world which it did, which it has done, even as we're sitting here now in the 21st century, the kingdom of God is in every nation all over this planet, over a billion people follow Christ. It's an amazing thing. To me, that's one of the great apologetic tools or key, or let's say, uh, tools, weapons, if you will, to show that Jesus is true, that his religion is true. is because he predicted this and it happened. Now, this idea of a tree, that is an, a scripture that's, a symbol that's in Scripture used sometimes in Scripture as a symbol of nations, according to the NIV Study Bible. I'm going to give you three Scriptures that would make a Jewish person, if he was familiar with these Scriptures, understand Jesus' reference. 
to the trees, referring to the nations of the world. Ezekiel 17:22 through 23, this is what the Lord God says, I will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and plant it. I will pluck a tender sprig from its topmost shoots, and I will plant it on a high-towering mountain. I will plant it on Israel's high mountain so that it may bear branches, produce fruit, and become a majestic cedar. Birds of every kind will nest under it, taking shelter in the shade of its branches. So there you have a symbol of a tree that starts out small, it gets bigger and bigger, and then the birds rest in that tree, taking shelter, which is exactly what the parable of the mustard seed sounds like. Now, some people say that the birds of the sky nesting in the branches refers to the safety that people feel, that the nations feel when they, when they rest in the kingdom of God, which is, of course, true. You do feel secure when you're like that. A nation would be secure if it would do that. I'm not sure that that's what Jesus meant in the parable. I'm sort of conservative on parables. I really believe in that idea. A parable teaches one main point, and I think the one main point is the kingdom of God is going to grow and grow and grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger and pretty soon consume the planet. Here's another Old Testament verse talking about trees and branches of trees referring to nations. Ezekiel 31.6, all the birds of the sky nested in its branches, and all the animals of the field gave birth beneath its boughs. All the great nations lived in its shade. So you see the trees giving shade to the nations. Daniel 4.20-22, now this is talking about Nebuchadnezzar who's receiving a prophecy from Daniel. The tree you saw in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, which grew large and strong, whose top reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And on it was food for all. Under it the wild animals lived, and in its branches the birds of the air lived. That tree is you, the king, for you have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown and even reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the ends of the earth. So see, Nebuchadnezzar's tree referred to a tree that was, became strong and powerful, reached to the ends of the earth, which is exactly what the kingdom of God is going to do in the parable of the mustard seed. It's go, the kingdom of God is going to reach to the ends of the earth. And you notice the wild animals live there, the branches, the birds of the air live there. This is, the idea is tree gets big and the animals and the birds rest under it that means the kingdom is spread the niv study bible says that daniel 4 20 through 22 is specifically alluded to by jesus as he gives that parable and i don't doubt that in the least by the way a mustard tree in palestine grew to about 10 feet tall so it starts out a little tiny seed and grows 10 feet tall it's a huge difference now, some people say that the parable of the mustard seed refers to the outward growth of the kingdom, the outward growth of the kingdom, whereas the parable of the leaven, which we're getting ready to look at right now, that parable of the leaven, these people say, refers to the inward growth of the kingdom. This is according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. I don't know if I'd make the distinction so much. It doesn't matter to me. The point is the kingdom is going to grow. And so Jesus gives another parable talking about the growth of the kingdom. Luke chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, and we'll finish with these two verses. Again, he, Jesus, said, What can I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed into 50 pounds of flour until it spread through the entire mixture. Now we know the physical characteristics of yeast. It starts out small. You put it into a loaf of bread, into a loaf of unleavened bread. Leaven is yeast. And... The leaven, the yeast, makes the bread expand and become much larger than it started out to. And that's the point. The kingdom of God starts out small and it gets big, just like an unleavened, a loaf of unleavened bread starts out small. After it's leavened, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, leaven and yeast is also sometimes referred to, in fact, often in the scriptures is referred to as something evil. In fact, usually it means evil. But there's another symbolic mean, 
meaning of leaven, growth. As NIV Study Bible and John Gale points out, it usually means evil, but here it means growth. So don't get the idea that this is evil spreading through the kingdom of God. And some people have actually interpreted it that way. I forgot who it was that, that uh, said that. The woman who is planted put the yeast in the 50 pounds of flour to make it rise and get bigger and bigger and bigger. Some people say the woman refers to Jesus or the church. I don't think so. Jameson, Foss, and Brown say so, but I don't think so. I think it's just an incidental detail. Now, the kingdom of God spreading, it could refer to the external growth of the kingdom through the nations, which I believe it does, just like the parable of the mustard seed. Some people say, as John Gill says, that it could refer to the internal growth of the kingdom in the believer's heart. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown says that. I don't think so. I think he's talking about the external growth of the kingdom. Although it is true that once you get got that seed of the gospel planted in your heart, it does grow. But I don't think that's what Jesus was getting at here. Well, at any rate, I have finished with Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 21. We will take up Luke. We will continue with Luke chapter 13 and verse 22. In our next audio, we'll talk about the straight and narrow gate and various miscellaneous teachings of Jesus, including another reference to the bad guys getting thrown out of the kingdom that would be the jews 8070 we'll see you next audio and i hope you enjoyed this one